Hi, this is Max Rovlin-Adler, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible and receiving the perk of getting this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. Full Stop relies on your support to flourish and grow. We're working on a ton of new and interesting projects, so your support is going a long way. And as always, directly to the writers and artists who make Full Stop possible. So thank you so much. Our website continues to be updated multiple times a week with reviews, essays, and interviews, so please check it out. This week, we released a brand new issue of the Full Stop Review Supplement, featuring our best reviews of new fiction from the past few months, as well as an original essay by Karja Marjuska, and I'm so sorry if I've just brutally pronounced your name, on the forgotten history of the bookmobile and the birth of small literary presses. She writes, The bookmobile was among the most influential infrastructural projects in the 20th century U.S. to have shaped reading habits. Its appropriation by the small press community, although on a relatively small scale, played a crucial role in forming independent publishing communities. The small press in this context should not be considered synonymous with any small publisher. It is instead a press characteristically unaffiliated with academic institutions or major media conglomerates, not motivated by profit and committed to often difficult, avant-garde forms of art and writing that grow out of the movement of political activism in the 1960s and 1970s. Pretty good stuff. I really recommend that you check out our new Full Stop Reviews supplement. And now on to this month's podcast. This month, we're featuring a bit of a throwback. It's a conversation between Full Stop contributing editor Allison Noel Connor and Gabrielle Civil, a poet and conceptual artist. And you might notice there's no mention of the ongoing pandemic or the protests against police violence and in support of Black Lives. That's because this was recorded in the beginning of March, right before the first lockdown orders went in place. But everything discussed here is still incredibly relevant, and probably even more so. Writing in Full Stop last year, Laura Weatherington described Civil's new book, Experiments in Joy, as a book about documenting a black woman's performance art in the face of historical, cultural, and practice-based erasure. This is a book for Civil's ancestors and for the future. This is a book about reaching out to strangers and inviting them to help imagine the future. So we'll just let Allison and Gabrielle take it from here. All right, Gabrielle, hello. Hello, Allison. <laughs> we're here, we're doing it. We're doing this in yes. your beautiful, beautiful home. Thank you so much for inviting us here on a lovely overcast Sunday. <laughs> first day of March. Yeah, first day of March. It's fantastic to be starting March off here with you. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, so let's just dive right in. I have a lot of questions to ask. I wanted to start off first with the image of the crossroads. Um, uh, as I was reading Experiments in Joy, there's a particular reference to the crossroads in one of your lectures performances, but then that got me that first got me thinking about it. But then as I was rereading, I, I thought of the many ways the crossroads appears in your own work and in, in your writing, in your teaching practice. Your performances, in a very general way, are all about bringing us to the crossroads, bringing us to thresholds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I loved the way that you pulled on the spiritual definitions of the crossroads, um, pulling from Haitian religious traditions and also um, West African traditions. And I, yeah, I just wanted to know sort of more about how the crossroads animate your work, animate your thinking, animate your process. 
What a fantastic question, and especially for the first question, <laughs> because the crossroads for me, it's funny, as, as you were talking, I was taking a little note, and I, and I wrote the word threshold, and that's a word that you said. For me, crossroads are very much about thresholds and intersecting places to move from one state of being or consciousness into another, to move from one room into another. It's so funny because here we are, we're in my studio space, and right up, you see there's like a vive that's like a, a, a sequin flag. And what do you see right there? Carrefour, the crossroads, you know? So it's interesting because I don't think I've ever thought so consciously about my relationship to crossroads. And yet, clearly, it's super important to me. I think as, a, as an opportunity to recognize how we're situated at the site of intersecting places or ideas or forces, how we ourselves are always a crossroads. Mm-hmm. We're the crossroads of our parents. We're the crossroads of prior generations and future generations. We're a crossroad of um, body, mind, and spirit. And so thinking about how these different registers, aspects, lines, lineages come together within us, and then how we arrive at and meet and create these different sort of lineages, lines, possibilities, modes, thinkings, beings, places. I think that is something that's important in my work. It's true, especially there's a text in Experiments in Joy that comes from the keynote that I did for the Claremont Colleges. Um, my dear, dear friend, Nicholas Daly, was creating something called Black Intersections, was the name of their first Black Student Affairs huge symposium that they were having. And I was thinking about intersecting blackness, and I was thinking about experiments and joy, and really recognizing that at the top of that whole conversation that I wanted to have in that keynote with myself and the people there, it was important to acknowledge a crossroad, open up a space for us to be able to move into new thinking and being together. And so I feel like that's an inheritance from you know, our Haitian (laughs) background. I mean, but it's also pretty new, Jack. It's pretty diasporic because the way that I think about Crossroads, it's not necessarily the the deeply literal kind of practice in which you, I mean, when when I do, when I invoke Crossroads, let's say, in, in performance or in a keynote, a performative lecture, it isn't literally bringing Legba into the space, right? But there is some gesture towards that because it comes from that that's that's where it is animated in me so there's something about crossroads thresholds and and I mean often when I'm starting to make a work if I'm in the studio I'll salute the four corners of the room you know just Mm -hmm. those kinds of things to remind myself of the cosmic nature of what I'm interested in and thinking about writing performance art making community art, engagement, and activism as spirit work, I think for me that's also connected to a crossroads idea. Mm, oh, I love that. So so much of that um, was resonating and also made me think of this idea of feeding the archive, which I feel like, again, is very important, not only in experiments of joy, but your first book as well, Swallow the Fish. Um, and as you were speaking about your relationship to Crossroads and this beautiful image of we are Crossroads inherently, it made me think again about this idea of 
the archive, not only your own archive, but the archive of black feminist artists who have, who influence you, who feed you, who came before you. And as I was reading your book, I, I love how you always call to them and, and make space for them and hold space for them. And it made me think in this way that when we think about archives, it's almost in this very like past and present, you know, this is who was in the past and not, and, and, and even the people who are in the past, not everyone is acknowledged. But the way that you approach the archive is this very sort of circular, again, going back to cosmology, it's present, past, present, future, they're all together. So I, I just wanted if you could speak more about that. Oh my goodness, it's so awesome the way that you just talked about that and bringing in the word cosmology because even more than cosmic, I think it's cosmologies that I'm interested in. And thinking about cosmology in relation to the archive is huge for me because, I mean, I love actually that we're in my house right now because in this room, just look around, there's a bunch of Wanda Coleman books and then there's this Martha Cobb book, um, Harlem, Haiti and Havana, which was one of the first books that I ever encountered in my life in the University of Michigan Graduate Library that was basically black comparative literature and someone talking about Langston Hughes and Nicolas Guillen and Jacques Roumain together. I mean, that was like mind blowing to me and I don't even know how many people know that book. It's deeply out of print and I had to hunt it down and like save money to get, but you know, like there's that behind you, there's like a book by Pearl Clegg, just and there's this Mari Evans collection of essays. Just all these really, I think, obscure books. There's Alexis DeVos' Spirit in the Street. For me, it's it's about living in the archive. It's about being surrounded by these voices and these possibilities and this work. And and so it's it is also feeding it through the production and generation, circulation, creation of my own work. It's also stewarding it, trying to preserve it. So many works by black women are out of print. Spirits in the Street is out of print. And some of these books that I have here, if they're not exactly out of print, they're about to be. Like you can get it now, but I don't know how many actual copies there are left of these books. Um, and, not, and let's not even get into the performances that were made that weren't recorded, that we know they happened, but we don't really know what happened in them. There's no documentation. There are no pictures. That's Modell Bass is a really is a person who I heard about through an amazing essay by a scholar named, I think, Carla Williams in Inca. And I was like, how is it that I don't even know who this person is? This is why scholars are amazing. There's so much like shade that's given to the academy. And some of it is definitely deserved. But you have all these people who are just going out and doing this work of recovering and reminding us of what was there. And like that feeds me so much. So there's something about feeding the archive and there's something about how the archive feeds us. Ooh, I love that. I love that. And it, yeah, it makes me think this generosity or this gesture towards generosity. And towards hoarding too. I mean, yeah. like, <laughs> I mean, like, here's like the whole Maya Angelou series. I mean, I, I wake up, I'm like, who do I think I am? I mean, I'm just like, do I need to have every single book and like, you know, thing by black women of all time? But kind of, maybe, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I feel really greedy. And like, if this whole society tumbles and we have to rebuild it, I'm here. I have the stuff that I want to have in the next iteration. I know what I want to bring with me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That feels really um, comforting, I guess, to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that toolkit in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, the treasure that. chest. Yeah, toolkit and a treasure chest. I yeah. love that, and that kind of leads into um, my next question again about these two words, visionary and haunted. And there's a 2012 interview um, in, in Experiments in Joy with this spectral evidence where they ask about your relationship to visionary and haunted. And at the time you said that those two words were twin poles in your work. And I was just curious if you still feel that way, what has evolved in that time period? Wow, another wonderful question. I love that question because it also lifts up a project, The Spectral Evidence, that was created by the poet Sun Young Shin in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. And she's a, if you don't know her work, definitely look it up because she's amazing. And those words, visionary and haunted, were key words for her project, that project, this, this spectral evidence. And when she brought it to me at that time, I was working with Mo Lionel, who's also mentioned in Experiments in Joy on a project related to Melvin Dixon's Vanishing Rooms. And that is definitely a book that is visionary and haunted. And we're just really thinking about kind of queer ghosts and ghosts of desire and and that hauntedness of the past. I think especially in that work, the work that we made sort of blank, doesn't know blank own beauty coming from the Nina Simone song. And then even the piece that I made on my own called Anemone was also very haunted in a specific way, haunted by a feeling of like the impossibility of love and what did it mean to be chasing towards love How did one relate to these figures of the body, queer and straight figures of the body, masculine and feminine figures of the body, and just feeling haunted? Really, I think there was a hauntedness around melancholy and heartbreak, I think, was a lot of that hauntedness there. And I think I'm feeling cheerful today, so I guess I'm not feeling that as much, although when I really look at my work, that is probably... It's probably still there. But I do think I have a relationship to the words visionary and haunted still in 2020. But it's a little bit different. I think visionary for me is about trying to move into new possibilities in my own practice and in both a kind of individual creative vision and thinking about new collective visions, what that might be, trying to move beyond binary understandings of what's right and wrong good and bad and still trying to hold on to some integrity and values but not not being so reactive I feel like there's a reactive quality to our culture right now in part because everything is like such an incredible dumpster fire so I I, so I understand it but when I I look back at someone like Gloria Anzaldúa to me when she talks about in-betweenness when she talks about Nepantla when she talks about like that's visionary to me and that's something that I'm trying to access in my own work. When I think about Intezake Shange and just even on her stylistic level, how visionary the way she jazzed that language up, just the, the, the substance of what she was working and trying to move my own working, my own moving, my own thinking into that. Like that for me is a new space of visionary. And also it's 2020. So the, my phrase for 2020 is radiant vision. So there's focus, there's clarity. Some people have focused on that. But for me, I'm interested in that radiant vision. And that's the visionary piece for me right now. Now, the hauntedness 
it's for me connected to the ephemerality of performance and thinking about performance practice as a ghost gesture Mm -hmm. and thinking as well about how I am deeply committed to, to the practices of writing and performance and how those practices are really in some ways oppositional because writing, you're trying to fight against ephemerality. You're really trying to create something that can be preserved but then in performance, it's all ephemeral. So it's about what happens in the ephemeral moment. And those two poles, they kind of, for me, move. I guess there's, there's productive tension between them, but they also help constitute one another. And so the writing, my own writing practice, is haunted by performance. It's haunted by what can't be preserved or written. Um, at the same time, I feel like that hauntedness is not melancholy per se. It's about tracery of the ghost or of the spectral. So I'm so excited. And I found out at the end of 2019 that I won the chapbook prize for the Goldmine Press nonfiction prize. Um, And Banu Kapil, who I admire very much, selected the manuscript. And the name of the manuscript is Ghost Gestures. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think some of my books some of my books as if I have a million books. Some <laughs> aspects of my books, I think for some people feel a little astral. I mean, I have a good friend, Jessica Martinez, and I love her, and she read Swallow the Fish, and she said, you know, that was great, but do you think you'll ever write a book where you actually say sort of like where you were and what job <laughs> you had, what you were doing, like what happened, like, and it goes from beginning, middle to end, and I thought, you know, wouldn't that be something to write that book? Wow. I don't, I don't know. What would that be? I always think about that because, you know, my books will go off into these, these directions and experiments and joy from my perspective is even more astral. It's just mm-hmm. very much a mixtape, right? And mm-hmm. ghost gestures is taking all of the kind of astral qualities, the performance text, the hybrid, poetic, embodied language, the transcription of what happened, the score, the, and just, it's a sequence of that. And so there's a piece that I did, the first piece I made in West Africa, which was called Ghost Gesture, How Do You Return to a Place Where You've Never Been? Mm. Um, it has like, right, the, that performance text and language around that. It has writing and images from some wandering that I did in Montreal where I saw these traces of black women like on walls and murals, but I didn't see any black women. I mean, it was all about my search for this black woman poet, Jacqueline Bourget-Rosier, who I've been translating Mm -hmm. and how I found her, weirdly enough, even though she wasn't there. So again, this ghost gesture. It has text from work that I did in Mexico where I dressed up as this Mexican doll that I saw all around. So it's just about like traces and spectrality and thinking about performance as a mode to lift up those kinds of experiences and actions. Ooh, I'm very excited. No, <laughs> I'm really thrilled. That, talk about the archive. I have so much writing that has been generated. I mean, literally, I have drawers and notebooks and fol- I mean, folders full of writing. And so now it's time to get this work out. Right. And that doesn't even count like new things that I'm working on. Right. So it's just trying to feed the archive, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. You mentioned actually your translation work. I'd love to know more about that I feel yeah I feel like of course your performance gets a lot of spotlight but I couldn't really find I feel like you really have to dig about (laughs) your translation and I feel like it feeds so much into your performance work Mm -hmm. so I just love to know yeah more about it well I think for me 
translation is connected to a part of myself that that there's well two major parts of myself one the kind of scholarly part of myself so I studied comparative literature I have a PhD in comparative literature and I was always interested in global and international literature Um, I was always interested especially in kind of experimental world poetry I was interested in how language travels from one state to another or what can't travel Mm. that felt really connected to the work I was doing as a poet um, which is how I started in all of this I started as a poet and still identify as a poet and so there's a part of me in terms of translation that's just interested in how language works and how how it moves and language as a material that's culturally informed culturally generated so that's one thing. But even on a deeper level, translation is very related to my Haitian identity. And it is very related to anxieties around authenticity, feeling mm-hmm. not Haitian enough, feeling not good enough, feeling shame and failure mm-hmm. in the performance or understanding of that. And so that's part of the reason maybe why you can't find some things there is because I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I mean, I have been working on the translation of one thing for almost 25 years. It is so over the top. And sections of it, I've had two wonderful translators read it. I mean, like award-winning translators, people I respect so much. And I was just like, I have worked on this off and on for years. I have suckered in poets that I know, Sun Young Shin, Chris Mason. I mean, so many people have have looked at this thing because the text Avaux d'Ombre by Jacqueline Bourget-Rodier is hard. It was written in 1966 under Duvalier's dictatorship. So you know the language is very coded. Um, it is not directly saying anything, okay? Mm-hmm. There's And the poem itself is a lot about silence and what it is to transform silence into something else. So the poem itself, in some level, is about the thing I'm trying to do and translating it. And I think every mistake that a person could make in translating a text, I made initially. And then I've been trying to undo those mistakes or also some of the mistakes are kind of interesting. So, I mean, I have so much writing about this project. I mean, and I made a performance about it and then the performance and writing about that performance is in Madhu Kaza's um, anthology mm. Kitchen Table Translation. I mean, so finally I was like, okay, let's get, this, let's, let's get this all together. And I thought, can I just abandon this? Or can I just say, this was a thing I tried to do and it's uneven and maybe it's not that good, but those of you who want to read the real thing, like read it in French and leave me alone <laughs> or, you know what I mean? And just like, but, so I gave the latest version of it. And you know, I've tried to get it published at various times and different sections have been published in journals and things. And I gave it to these two wonderful translators, John Pluker and Elena Rivera. And both of them were like, no, you're not done. And I was like, wait, can't I just like say I did it and, it, and it's not perfect or it's not good enough, but this is, what, and they were like, no. And I, and I was like, why not? And Elena said, because some of this is so good that I know you can make the rest of it as good as this. So then I was like, oh my God, okay, so what does that mean? What, is, what are we going to go here? I said, what do you mean some of it is so good? Like, what, I feel like, I feel so stuck, I said. And she said, oh, you know what your problem is? You're too faithful to the original. Ah, oh, I couldn't believe that. Everywhere, I mean, I had tried in all these different places, and all these French speakers had been like, your French isn't, you don't understand this well, and this is so bad, there's too many mistakes. I mean, I've had all these things, and I was trying to, you're not faithful enough, you're going too far. That was a lot of the feedback that I'd gotten over the years. And she was like, oh no, that's, no, it's too faithful. 
where are you in this poem? So that's a big problem because my what I want to do, and again, thinking about lifting up the archive, like I have an original copy of Avodombre by Jacqueline Bourget-Rosier that she signed and gave to me before she wow. passed away. Like it's over there right on my shelf with all these things right in this room. So I want to lift her up. I mean, that book is out of print in French. So I have a big mm. responsibility to her. And if I can try to get that book out, my translation, it needs to be an unfast translation so that her book in French can come back into print. But that's a lot of pressure, too, because then if you speak, if you read French, you can see like, well, why did Gabrielle do that? It really shows it'll show my vulnerability, my insufficiency, my specificity, you know, mm-hmm. my diaspora identity. So it's 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 a lot of pressure. But I also feel like, OK, I'm grown now. I started this when I was a student. Let's get this out. And then those who are more, I mean, there there shouldn't just be one version. That's one problem. And especially around black diaspora, whether it's African-American, sort of a Caribbean, whatever, there's this pressure, like only one of something. We're still reading Langston Hughes's translation of Jacques Roumain's Masters of the Dew. That's ridiculous. And I love Langston Hughes, but he did that like in the 19, what? 30s or 40s mm-hmm. and so we need more versions and so I feel a lot of pressure um, but hopefully 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 in the next year or two the, it'll all come out mm-hmm. and people can see my errors what attracted you to her work out of curiosity or how did you oh, yeah. discover or not that's discover? a wonderful story that'll be in the book too so so my father would go to Haiti every summer to visit relatives and he would always bring things back. So he would bring back paintings, like in the house mm. right now, there's a painting in the kitchen that came from that. Um, there's a painting actually in my bedroom. He would bring back, I mean, I don't know in your family, like all those mm-hmm. wooden sculptures that we sh- that you, there shouldn't exist because of the deforestation, <laughs> but we all have all these sculptures <laughs> in the house. <laughs> Painting. I know. <laughs> bring back like the yellow box of Babancourt with like the cases of rum, you know, that you could get at the airport. Mm-hmm. Bring back fabric and beads, whatever. Mm-hmm. So whatever my grandmother and my aunt and whatever they wanted me to have. And so as I was getting older and I was trying to get my French together, and I said, "Well, can you bring back books?" Mm-hmm. So he brought back an anthology of Haitian poets from the 1950s and 60s, which is also in this house. And a lot of the poetry in that book was very pretty, like very, you know, like kind of lovely images of the tropics and things about how you love Haiti and your family and justice or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then Jacqueline Boucher, her thing was completely different. It was abstract and thorny and like rhapsodic and weird and strange. And I just, it was different from everything else in that book. And I thought, oh no, I, I want, what is this? I need to read more of this, right? So then... I said to my father, okay, well, when you go back to Haiti, can you get the whole book? So he went back and he said that he, you know, like asked around and he asked my aunt, who's a school teacher and and quite literary actually, and has a, runs her own school and the whole deal. And just, and they were like, no, 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 this book doesn't exist. This this doesn't exist. So, I mean, years later I find out, well, it doesn't exist because Duvalier like burned or destroyed most copies of it. And that, you know, there really are not very many copies of it in existence at all at this point. All right. But I was like, okay, let me just, let me see what I can do. And at that time, 
years then passed and I was in New York City. I was a graduate student at NYU in comparative literature. I took the very first translation practicum that they had with Richard Seaberth and Elliot Weinberger. And Elliot Weinberger is a pretty amazing translator and a very technically excellent one. Like he's like not a dude that makes mistakes, it seems like to me, unlike little Gabrielle Seville. But um, <laughs> so I was like, I want to do this this project, but I need to find this book. And that's the gift of New York City because the Schomburg was there. And then there was another graduate student that I knew who worked at the New York Public Library, you know, the one with the big lions mm-hmm. in the front. And so she did some research and said, well, as it turns out, it just so happens they have a copy of this book at the Schomburg. So I got on the train. I'll never forget that day. I was so, I was like amazed and thrilled and went and found this thing that for years in my family, I'd been trying to find a copy of this book. Oh, looking wow. at, and you know, a lot of this is pre-internet. Right, so right. just trying to use connections, Haitian people, friends of friends, whatever. Right. But it was there. And so if I hadn't been studying in New York, I don't. I mean, maybe I would never even have been able to see it, but I just got on the train from Brooklyn, went up to Harlem, and the last piece, I mean, there's more to the whole story, which right, is kind right, of funny, right. but I'll say, you know, I was kind of a broke graduate student, and at the Schomburg, you can only photocopy one page. You can't fold a book, and even if two pages of a book would fit, you have to go page by page, mm. and one page was 25 cents. <laughs> So I had to like, like broke the bank for me <laughs> to copy this book length poem, but I did not care. I was so happy that I got to do that. And then that started the whole, that's, that started it. And so that was in 1997. Oh, wow. I know. Whoa. I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. I know. John Fluker was like, you tried to do every single thing with one translation, with one project. Like you, and it's true. I mean, mm. in 25 years, I could have t- translated 20 things 10 things or whatever but it's but it's so this is about perfectionism and this is about silence and this is about shame and and failure Mm. and trying again and not letting go I mean it's it's wild because I feel like your connection to Rosier it shows up so much in your books this kind Mm. of idea of this like it makes me think of how you mentioned um Kevin Young's uh, idea of the shadow book absolutely um and the fact that duvalier burned the copies the fact that it was he did not want these words to get out right and that you know so many years later here they are in your hands it just seems meant to be in various ways i hope so i mean i also it's about my own ego because there probably <laughs> are better translators than i am you know but, but for whatever reason i felt like this is a book that called to me and so I, it's like i gotta i gotta keep going i gotta yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, to kind of uh, shift a little bit, I'd love, we were talking before when you were making us tea about your dance practice and mm-hmm. how that feeds into your writing. I'm really interested in it because we were saying the sort of stereotype of the writer is very alone, very sedentary, mm-hmm. and you and other people totally explode that. Um, so I just, I'm very interested in how dance sort of got stitched into your creative practice thank you for asking that question because I have such a contested and and weird and rich relationship to dance Um, I think that essay and experiments in joy black swans Mm -hmm. talks a little bit about it in terms of specifically my relationship to ballet and growing up in the 80s in Detroit really when when I thought about dance I thought about ballet 
because that's what I thought. You know, there I wasn't at that time exposed enough to different kinds of dance. I mean, and of course, of course, there's like Haitian dance. There are various West African dance forms. There's modern dance. I mean, Alvin Ailey. I mean, there's so much. But I just think in terms of what was accessible to me as a girl and all of these stories about dance, about the girl dancer, the girl who wants to be a dancer, and she always wanted to be a ballet dancer. Right. It's always about these ballet books. And as I talk about in that essay, for me, there was this idea of the dancer, the girl dancer, as a stand-in or as a as of something to hold on to about becoming an artist. So there was always a relationship for me in my mind with dance and kind of being an artist and being an art making and taking yourself seriously as an artist. The girls in those books, they were white girls, often they had money, they were whatever. So they were not, they weren't from Detroit, they weren't me, but they had a really intense passion for this thing that they wanted to do, which was be creative and to be kind of like a, a boss, to be an autonomous creative person. And that was what I wanted. And so that was a model for me. My journey was about how to take the idea of that and bring that into my own body and move that in, as a dancer in that way. And that has been a really interesting and continuing and like ongoing journey because in dance class, like I'm always the clumsiest, the darkest, the fattest. Like I'm, it's, you know, often it's been, again, walking into these spaces of potential shame, not being able to follow the steps, not being able to do it. I mean, I'm a natural mover. I feel like I'm a beautiful mover. But mm-hmm. choreography, following other people's steps has always been challenging for me because there's something in me that <laughs> doesn't want to do it. I, guess. I just wants to do my own damn thing. I don't know what it is. But then why am I still there? Why am I still going? There's something about that potentiality of movement and meaning making through the body that isn't so literal, that's very connected to my own performance art making and is also deeply connected to poetry for me and writing overall. So I'm, I'm going like, in fact, I'm sneaking off um, to... Riverside, oh, I'm sorry, the University of California at Riverside has, I mean, I don't even know everybody that's teaching there in the dance program, but the two, I mean, Taisha Padgett yes. and Nigel Whitson, what two geniuses can you have? I mean, like, what on earth? And then Nigel Whitson has just put together, they've put together something called Embodied Ologies. It's a series in dance research. They are bringing together some of the most, they're bringing to Southern California some of the most extraordinary non-binary and trans black dancers working in the world i mean it is so off the chain who's who's you got like jay dodd i mean you've got all these amazing people and nick k is doing a workshop and a performance on tuesday and normally i have to teach i mean all this stuff is happening on tuesday and wednesdays which are my day my teaching day so i couldn't do most of it but i'm going to a conference this week and it just so happens that i'm gonna sneak off to this Nick K workshop, like basically right before I try to get on a plane to go to this. Th- but I was like, I have to go to this workshop because, yeah. I mean, the title of the workshop is Why We Move. Just even that as a question that's so connected to what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Or I have been doing work through the MELT series and movement research in New York City and through the Seattle Festival of Dance Improvisation in Seattle. Those two pr- places for the last number of years, especially MELT, because in Seattle, I've only gone for the last two years, but I'm going back. And this year, they're actually asking me to deliver Ooh, a workshop. Whoa, look at what? you. What? Moving on up, moving on up. <laughs> but no, but I mean, I've had an opportunity to, to kind of study with Mayfield Brooks, Improvising While Black, or like I've studied in January with um, Jamil 
Oluwale Kosoko and, and building your own biomythography. I mean, these are movement workshops. This is dance that it's coming out of, right? And being in rooms with dancers. Ananya Chatterjee, I did the her ADT Ananya Dance Theater has a three-week intensive on their Yorsha technique. I did it over the summer. I mean, so just really coming in into these embodied practices as a way of engaging embodied knowledge, embodied ways of knowing, and how that then can feed into my own performance making and writing. Mm, so exciting. And I love uh, Taisha. Her work is Ooh. definitely forgot. I remember she did a few years ago um, School for the Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I took a few classes through that because it was actually near my apartment and it was... Mm. Yeah, it really kind of changed my relationship to movement, to writing, to thinking about being a person in a body. Mm. Um, and it was wonderful because I remember in that environment, everybody, it wasn't just, you know, what you would think of as dancers. You know, there were writers, there were performers, there were people from all walks of creative life. It was Moving really together. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mostly black and brown people. Um, it was very, it was beautiful. Um, well, that's something, I mean, I think about. I took my mom with me to a dance performance uh, by Anna Martine Whitehead. Mm -hmm. And it was so incredible. I mean, my mom is super curious and interesting anyway, and she's gotten even more kind of cool and adventurous as she's gotten older, I think. So we were like, okay, let's just go to the Jam Handy on the east side of Detroit and see this thing about like prison abolition and movement, whatever. My mom loved it. Mm -hmm. And... She then was sort of like, I thought about Martine and I thought about what you do and I'm going to go to the sorority meeting and I'm going to change. I'm going to do my presentation in a different way. So it makes me think about how exposure to dance can rewire and change Mm. ways of walking in everyday life. And Taisha, definitely. Um, And then also just even you see this corner here, Wild Beauty. That was a dance project I just did in January for MLK Day with these dancers. And since we're talking about dance, I just have to, to mention like Fox Whitney and Neve Music Bianco and Randy Ford who danced with me and we'd created this, this black movement ritual for MLK Day. And it had a community celebration and it had these different components and Velocity allowed us to be in residency to build this work. But part of the work was rest and being together. So there's something happening with dance where there's incredible virtuosity. I mean, when I was just doing co-facilitating a workshop at the Lula Washington Dance Center with Tamika Washington Miller for Remap through Arts Change US, we had an opportunity to watch the Lula Washington Dance Company rehearse a brand new dance. I mean, and when I watch them, I'm like, okay, everybody, like, <laughs> hello, that's dance. I mean, just like virtuosity and really hitting marks and like how le- how high can your leg extend and how grounded, how beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. It's wonderful to watch. Mm-hmm. But dance for me is not that. That's not the part that I aspire towards. I want to support that, see that. I can try to take a class in that. But it's this other thing about thinking and moving through the body that incorporates rest and recovery, that incorporates concepts of movement. And so something around improvisation and improvising in movement, improvising in life, improvising in blackness, which is connected to Mayfield Brooks improvising while black technology, all of that, that is feeding me really deeply right now. Mm. Oh, I love all of that because it makes me think of the reading slash activation 
that you did last Sunday that I was able to attend. Um, it was hosted by the Women's Center for Creative Work mm-hmm. in celebration of the workbook component of Experiments in Joy, which is um, published by their in-house press, Co-Conspirator Press. Right. Um, folks should definitely check that out so you can learn how to activate Experiments in Joy in your own life. It was really great because I feel like it was set up almost like a reading and conversation with Mandy Mandy Harris, Harris, yeah, yeah, the program's director. But it was wonderful how it shifted in and out of conversations, activations, doing or you know answering the questions in the in the notebook, in the workbook, but not answering them answering them in these embodied ways, Mm -hmm. which was really exciting. And so yeah, I just I love how you take for me taking that workshop, I realized how stilted my definition of joy had been Mm. and how, I don't know, I saw it as very, joy as this very sort of concrete thing, like almost like a destination to arrive Mm. at, you know? Um, And it was really beautiful to kind of think of, to simplify it, even in thinking of ways of joy in your body, like what does that, more as a process as as opposed to this very uh, idealized, you know, thing to achieve absolutely so um, we talk in various ways in that in the workbook where there's testimony from all the seven original artists who created the call for experiments in joy and in various ways we all talk about joy is not it's not a feeling or just a feeling but as a practice as a process so when we think about joy as a destination, something you have to get to, then there's a lot of sense of insufficiency. There's a lot of mm-hmm. pressure, but it's more about like, well, what if there are these different things that you can try to do that might generate something like joy or the trying is a practice of joy in and of itself. And that actually even is connected to my friend, Lewis Wallace, who's a wonderful journalist and writer. We were talking about hope and he says like, hope is not a feeling, it's a practice. And so, especially in a political context, when you're feeling hopeless, it's not about your actual feelings. It's about, well, what, however I feel, I'm still going to organize. I'm still going to uh, like work for justice in my community. And so I think about that as something that also informed my own understanding of joy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, more of this. It makes it more practical. Or just more real to how we... Accessible to something like so. I'm feeling... I mean, and and it's hard because people can feel low, have the blues, be depressed, and it can be difficult to get out of bed and do whatever. But even one of the exercises that we did in the workshop where you just rub your hands together. Let's see. Let's see if you all can hear the rubbing of my hands. (laughs) And then just lay it on the parts of your body that bring you joy or that need joy. And just see if anything shifts from that. That is very simple. You don't have to get up anywhere. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to talk to anyone. I mean, so those kinds of practices for me are also in the spirit of activating joy. Yes, I love that. That brings it back to that crossroads Mm -hmm. within yourself. Mm -hmm. To come back to your own crossroads. Look at Mm -hmm. you bringing it back. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I think... I think, yeah, that was a lot of the things that were on my mind. I feel like just to leave it for the full stop audience, 
what's bringing you joy on this yeah. Sunday day or what what are you looking forward to this week any well you know what I'm looking forward to <laughs> I'm looking forward to me and you and maybe Pony going and getting some pancakes and mimosas at the Residency Project yes. where the artist Constance Y. White is going to talk about her work that's what I'm looking forward to it's like you know like black woman art Sunday yes, yes. and you know and the pancakes and mimosas don't hurt either <laughs> The, the idea of that is bringing me joy in a very deep way. So yeah. Yes. Oh, I love that. Well, that's a wonderful way to end this beautiful, beautiful interview. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for your generosity, your vision, just your openness. I feel I've been telling a lot of friends about your work, sending your workbook to friends. And I feel oh, like, thank you so much. of course, of course, I just feel, I don't know. I get, I get goosebumps whenever I read your work in a very, in a way that makes me want to do and to think more deeply and more presently. Um, so I thank you for doing that work. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Full Stop Podcast. You can support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag and always find a ton of reviews, essays, and interviews at www.full-stop.net. We're so glad to have you joining us on this strange and never rushed, but always on time, literary journey. We'll see you next time.